Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll see the historical context of Paul when he went to the city of Thessalonica. found 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 1 this is where Paul is at in the reading that we just heard from he passed through Amphipolis can't say it, those two sounds that start with an A <laughs> and he came to Thessalonica now what preceded his coming to Thessalonica we know that last week Pastor Dan, that he was in the city of Philippi. We know that the Philippian jailer came to faith in Christ because Paul was publicly beaten before the magistrates. We don't know how many stripes were laid upon him. Many stripes beyond 39. He was publicly humiliated. He was thrown into the inner prison, fastened with stocks, and then escorted out of the city. Now what would possess a man to fight into the next city and repeat the same thing over again? I would like to know, I really would like to know what drives someone with that kind of fervor Jesus Christ. Because quite frankly, I need the same thing. I need that kind of passion that when I am kicked, when I'm rejected, when I'm scorned, that I will keep pressing on. I want North Valley Bible Church, Dan, Ron, those of us in leadership of this church, and those who are members here, and those who attend here, I think every one of us are in unity today that we would love to see North Valley Bible Church graduate from being under tent makers and be an independent, local body that is rocking North Georgia for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's what happened in Thessalonica. This was a church that was turning the world up Side down. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could say that North Valley Bible Church is turning this area upside down for Jesus Christ? Well, what drove Paul? We have a little insight in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, For you yourselves, he's writing to the Thessalonians. Notice how emphatic he is. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It produced what God wanted to see produced there. My coming, it wasn't without effect. But even after we suffered before and, for, and were shamefully treated or spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know... You know what happened at Philippi. 
and we were still willing to travel 60 miles on foot to get to the city of Thessalonica. It wasn't in vain. We were bold, and this is where we find Paul's resolve. This is where we find our resolve. We were bold in our God. Paul was not naturally a bold person. He was in Corinth, and he said, I was there in fear and in much trembling. He wrote the Ephesians, and he said, Pray that I might speak the word of Christ with boldness for which I am in chains. I don't think any of us find it naturally to be bold about our Christian faith. So how does that happen? We are bold in our God. He's the one who gives us boldness. We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel in much conflict, agonizing, agonia. It's like a wrestling match. He says we were bold in our God. Then he gives us all the reasons why. For our exhortation, my preaching, Paul says, our exhortation, my preaching to you, it didn't come from air. This Bible is without air. And you want to have boldness? You take this book and you tell people that this book is God-breathed. This is the breath of God. We can have all boldness because we know our gospel is inspired. It is without air. Paul said it was in uncleanliness, not in uncleanliness, nor was it in deceit. The Greek word for deceit is the word planet. Always moving, always shifting, always changing. The gospel of Jesus Christ has not changed for 2,000 years. It's always been salvation by grace alone, faith alone in Jesus alone. There's no deception, there's no changing that, there's no moving from it. And the minute you do, that's when you are in error, that's when you're in uncleanliness, and that's when you are in deceit. And Paul says, we are bold because we know what we're preaching, we know where it came from, and we know it is never changing. With all that said, he says, I'm going to move on to Thessalonica. Let's go back over to Acts 17, and we'll look at this church that turned its world upside down for Christ. What do we need to be like in order to turn our world upside down? I, I've got a simple, simple message this morning. It's going to probably be hard to follow. That's my fault. But the simplicity of this message is this. A church that turns the world upside down has to have two characteristics. From this passage, anyway. There's probably a lot more, but from this passage, I see two things. One... We must be at all times committed to biblical preaching. That we are not going to deviate from that. We're not going to talk about what we read on the internet. We're not going to talk about politics. That's not going to be our theme. Our theme is the Word of God. That's what transforms and that's what changes lives. The second thing I see in this passage 
A church that turns the world upside down is a group of people that are prepared for persecution. When you start living a life separated unto God, you are going to ruffle feathers. You are going to be like a salmon swimming up against the flow. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. That's what happened where everywhere Paul went. Now let's kind of elaborate that. Well, everywhere the gospel goes, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, everywhere the gospel goes is a savor. It's an aroma. It's a smell. It's a smell of life to those who are persuaded. But it's an aroma and a smell of death to those who reject it. Either Jesus is gathering or you are scattering. Either you are with the Master or you are against the Master. That's the nature of the gospel. The gospel divides. It calls for a decision to follow Jesus Christ by faith. And the nature of that, as we see in this passage, some were persuaded, some Jews were not persuaded, and they stirred up a mob. So in order to preach the gospel effectively, I believe from this passage we can see that Paul had a strategy. His strategy was two-pronged. First of all, Paul's strategy was that of a pragmatist. Now, I know pragmatism gets a bad name today because a lot of modern Christian churches have taken pragmatism. By the word pragmatism, I mean a pragmatist is someone who asks this question, what is working? So it tries to fashion the church after what will draw crowds. That's person who swings way over to this edge of pragmatism. Doesn't ask what is biblical, but he's more concerned about what is working, what's going to draw people. Flash music, dim lights, seeker-friendly sermons that don't offend anybody. That will attract people, but that's not biblical. Paul, in his pragmatism, said, I want to be effective, and I want to be efficient. As a Bible church, we need to be practical. We need to be effective, and we need to be efficient. We need to be asking those questions. What will work to reach our culture? What will work to reach our society? That doesn't mean that we compromise the message in any way, as we can see in this passage. Paul never compromised the message but he looked for an effective way to reach the most people in the most efficient time. Now, how do I know that? Because Paul took the Ignatian way. This was a traveled highway that it was going to be expedient for him to go on, and so he was looking for the quickest way to get to where he needed to go. We need to look for the most effective way that we can get the Word of God out to as many people as we can. Whether it means media, whether it means uh, radio, I if it means a good Facebook page, if it means having a great website, that's what I think the Apostle Paul would say, let's be efficient, let's be effective, let's turn this upside-down area for Christ, and let's turn it for Jesus' sake. So he took the Ignatius way, and we also noticed that he purposely bypassed two cities. Now, why did Paul do that? Was it those people in those cities were not important to Paul? Was it that God had not died for the people in those cities? Yes, he did, and those people were important. But Paul was asking the pragmatic question. 
How can I reach the most people in the shortest amount of time to have the greatest impact for all of Macedonia? So he purposely walked through those two cities and made his way to Thessalonica. Let's read the passage together. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. We see his strategy, don't we? He's saying, I know that there are receptive people who are hearing the word of God read every single Sabbath day, and that's who I'm going to target. Wasn't that those other people weren't important. In fact, those people were going to be reached, but Paul knew that if I can reach these people, then they can reach others. Let's see Paul's strategy, but we don't have time this morning. But if we went back in all the other passages, Acts chapter 13 and verse 5, Paul went to the synagogue. Acts chapter 13 and verse 14, Paul went to the synagogue. Acts chapter 14 and verse 1, Paul went to the synagogue. Acts chapter 17, again, he went to... And, and our English translation has a synagogue, but in the Greek, the direct article is found. He went to the synagogue. This entire area, this was the only synagogue. And so if you were a Jew in all of these other regions, this is where you had to come. And if you were a God-fearing Gentile and you were being drawn away from paganism to serve the true and living God, as he writes the Thessalonians, this is where you would have gone to worship. And so Paul had a strategy. His strategy was to be effective and to be efficient. Let's look at, his, at his, how Paul was efficient. Verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, so he had a strategy. He wanted to be efficient, but he also wanted to be effective. What made Paul so effective is that people heard the word of God repeatedly. He went in and he reasoned for three Sabbath days. Repeated exposure to the gospel over and over and over again. I have found the most effective way to reach people is to get them engaged in the Word of God because it is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our mind and it exposes people. I gave a man a New Testament in Ireland and I challenged him to start reading the Gospel of John every single day. And a week later, he'd read through the Gospel of John. He walked into my laboratory and he started shaking that little New Testament at me. And he says, Patty, he says, I want you to know you've ruined my life. He had read about Jesus Christ. He was exposed every single day to reading the words of Jesus. Right now, I'm doing a Bible study with a man week by week, going through the Gospel of John. I was talking to Brother Rick yesterday. And Brother Rick told me, I didn't know the statistic, but he says oftentimes people need to hear the Gospel at least seven times before they come to faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be effective. We need to find a means to expose people to the truth of Jesus Christ over a repeated period of time. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. For three Sabbath days, he reasoned. Now, what does it mean to reason with people? It doesn't mean that we argue. It doesn't mean that we dispute. And it doesn't mean that we give a monologue. 
The Greek word is dialego. We all know what word comes from that, don't we? Dialogue. I looked up this word, the definition, by A.T. Robertson, who's a scholar of the New Testament. And this is what A.T. Robertson said about this word dialogue. It means to thoroughly mingle one thought with another thought. To fully explain your point of view. Paul did that three weeks in a row in the synagogue. A.T. Robinson goes on and says this word represents the use of the Socratic method. I never knew what the Socratic method was until I started teaching for Dr. Goers. She introduced me to the Socratic method. Didn't know what it meant. It comes from Socrates. The Socratic method, and this is what this word dialogue comes from, it's posing a question to elicit discourse, to get people interested in the subject. I can imagine Paul would go into the synagogue and he would ask the question, does Jesus of Nazareth, that man that was nailed to a cross, does that man qualify to be the Jewish Messiah? And boy, you would have heard reverberation among those Jews. You would have got a discussion going. All you have to do is walk on a college campus and ask somebody who believed Jesus Christ to be. And boy, you're going to get into a dialogue. You're going to get into a dialogue, a discussion, a reasoning of who Jesus Christ is. This is what Paul did. He dialogued with them. So he was being pragmatic. He had a system of way he was going to do things. He went to the synagogue. He wanted to be efficient. He wanted to be effective. But most importantly, he was Biblical. Paul was biblical, and that's what we need to be. In our strategy to reach people for Christ, we need to be effective, we need to be efficient, but most importantly, we must be biblical. You know, I can kind of bumble around and not be the best pastor preacher. I can not always be so efficient the way I reach people, but if I err on not being biblical, I have blown everything. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. And Paul knew this. In fact, he told the Thessalonians, he says, Beloved brethren, I know your election by God. I know that you're a part of God's corporate people. Why? For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but it came in power it came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with much conviction. And you saw what manner of men we were among you. So Paul knew that this gospel was having an effect. Now what about those cities that Paul didn't reach? Apollonia and Amphibia. You know what I'm talking about. Apollonia and Amphipolis. What about those cities? What happened? When Paul left Thessalonica, well, let me tell you what happened. This is from his letter to the Thessalonians. Paul says, you became followers of us, mimickers of us. You Jews, excuse me, you Gentiles who got saved, you became imitators of us Jews who brought you the message in the same way that we were persecuted by our countrymen, you were persecuted by your own countrymen. He goes, you became an example to all those who believe in Macedonia. 
And not only in Macedonia. Macedonia is northern Greece. He says, you became an example to southern Greece, Achaia, Corinth, Athens, all of southern Greece. Why? What did they do? For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith toward God has been spoken. And Paul says, believe this or not, he says, I don't need to say anything now because your message is permeated all of northern Greece and all of southern Greece. Paul's strategy to reach Thessalonica then impacted all of Macedonia and all of Achaia. Let me just give you a little illustration of how this works out in our lifetime. About six years ago, seven years ago maybe, I can't remember how long ago it was exactly, I began to disciple a young Christian man. He was just new in his faith, and I sort of took a wing and started discipling, started meeting with him every single week. This was a man that was teachable. That was my strategy. I wanted to teach people who were teachable who then could reach others. I started teaching him how to witness, how to get, share his faith. Next thing I know, he's working with a man who's lost and needs Jesus. We meet every single week, and I'm discipling him how to reach this guy. I never meet this guy. About six weeks later, I find out through the man that I'm discipling that this man now has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Not only did he come to faith in Jesus Christ, about a week later, his wife came to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only did his wife come to faith in Jesus Christ, his mother-in-law has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that wasn't my strategy. That wasn't my vision. But that's the way God works. You reach those who are teachable, who then can reach others. And that's what was happening. This is a church that's turning the world upside down. Now, as far as being biblical, what did Paul do with the Scripture? Let's look at verse Four, verse 3, as it explains what he does. Paul, as his custom was, went in for three Sabbaths and he reasoned with them, notice his source, from the Scriptures. This is the Old Testament. This is the book of Moses. This is the Law and the Prophets. And this is the Psalms. That's the Old Testament canon. 39 books. The exact same Old Testament that you and I have. That's what Paul had. And he took that as his source. And what did he do? Two words. Notice that they've got I-N-G endings. Those are called participles. They explain the main verb, reasoned. How did he reason? I like the old King James. Opening and alleging. This morning I was listening to a lot of alleging that the Republicans are doing about this last election. I'm not going to get into that. That's another rabbit trail. <laughs> but to allege is to explain something and then to give the facts for it. So the New King James says explaining and demonstrating. The Greek word explaining literally means to open something, to divide it, so as to expose it so that you can see for yourself. This is what Paul was doing, and this is why people were getting saved. This is why people were being persuaded, is he took the Bible, he opened it up, he showed them in the Word of God, and then he gave demonstrable facts that proved it. 
And what was he trying to prove? He was trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the Jewish Messiah. Now, why did he have to do that with the Jewish people? The Jewish people should have been ready for their Messiah. They were looking for a king, weren't they? They were looking for somebody on the throne of David. They were looking for somebody to overthrow the Roman Empire. Is this Jesus of Nazareth? A crucified king with a crown of thorns? This can't be our Messiah. So he opened up those scriptures, divided it and showed them, gave them facts that Jesus must do two things. He must suffer a cruel and wicked death. And he must rise again. A dead Messiah was useless. A suffering Messiah made no sense to the Jews. And so Paul took those scriptures and said, Is this the Jesus that we are looking for? He is the one who was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It pleased the Father to bruise him. Through, for his, through his iniquity and by his stripes, you and I are healed. Yes, but what about his death? The Messiah was to be one who would sit on the throne of David forever because God had sworn and made an oath to David that your seed will sit on this throne. And so Psalm uh, 16 is a great messianic psalm. It says, the sure mercies of David have been given to you. Therefore, the Holy One will not see corruption neither will he suffer his anointed one to stay in the grave. This is the Messiah. He suffered for our sins. He raised himself from the dead to prove and to verify. And a result of Paul's strategy, and if we will follow this pattern, I believe what happened in Thessalonica will happen right here. Many people were persuaded and they consorted or they joined with Paul and Silas. The last part of being a biblical church is joining together in a locality to work together to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at our second point. We'll probably have to just abbreviate this point for the sake of time. Persecution follows when we are counter-cultural. Persecution will follow when we are counter-cultural. Verse 5, but the Jews, and I know that a lot of modern translations do not have this phrase, but I assure you that it's in the vast majority of our manuscripts, so I'm going to include it, but the Jews who were not persuaded. Some of them were persuaded. And notice a great multitude of devout Greeks. Verse 4. God-fearing Gentile worshipers who were coming to the synagogue. They were outnumbering the Jews in mass. The adjectives that Luke uses, the word for multitude is the word plethora. And then he uses another adjective to modify multitude, a great plethora of Gentiles. You can imagine what this was doing to the Jewish mindset. What? This is our Messiah. 
This is our Savior. This is our King. These are our covenants. How dare you uncircumcised Gentiles partake in what belongs to us? This is the angry mob that was stirred up by the Jews. Religious people are always offended by free grace. Free grace is you come to Christ alone regardless of keeping the laws. You come to Christ alone regardless of your pedigree. Doesn't matter what your ancestry was. You are accepted in Christ alone. And the Jews just couldn't get that through their mind. At least some of them couldn't. And so it began persecution. And this will happen to any Bible-believing church that preaches Jesus Christ. It just can't be that simple. It can't be that easy. You've got to have all these things that go with it. And those religious Jews became envious. We told in verse 5. They became envious and they took some evil men from the marketplace. Now what does God do with persecution? The wonderful thing that God does with persecution is God actually uses it as an accelerant for the spreading of the gospel. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. When Paul went to Antioch of Pisidia, they raised up an uproar and they threw him out of the city and he had to go to Iconium and Lystra. At Lystra, the Jews from Iconium Antioch came and they stirred up the, the, the people at Lystra. And what did Paul do then? He was stoned and he had to leave there and he went to Derby. Everywhere Paul went, the gospel went with him. They thought they were going to stop the spread of the gospel by persecution, but instead they were fanning the flames of the fire of the good news. Paul may have never gone to Thessalonica if he hadn't have been so shamefully treated at Philippi, but he had to leave town. Paul then goes to Berea after he leaves Thessalonica because they take security from Jason. And Paul can't stay in that city. And he goes to Berea and the people of Berea are more fair-minded and they receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is happening because of persecution? The world is being turned upside down. And we need to be prepared for persecution and turn persecution into opportunities to proclaim Jesus Christ. Lastly, the exclusive claims of Jesus are an offense to the dogmas of Rome. We are living under the dogmas of Rome, I'm afraid, that we are on the precipice of entering into a new era that our kids are going to have to live in. We're living in an age unprecedented. Globalization, and whether you like it or not, one by one of our civil liberties and our religious freedoms are being stripped away from us. And this is the thing that stirs them up more than anything else. There is another king. There is another leader on the throne. It's not the United Nations. It's not NATO. It is Jesus the Christ. And that's what stirred people up, and that's what brought the persecution. 
Now, I've got about 10 minutes, and I'm going to rapidly go through a Bible study with you, so I'm changing gears, and I'm not going to ask you to turn in your Bibles because I've got too much to cover in a short amount of time, but I want to cover something that's not spoken about in a lot of churches. Sometimes it's a topic that people want to avoid because it can produce controversy, but I want to present it in a very biblical, rational, understandable way. What was God doing in the first century church as it regards to the Jewish people, as it has regard to the doctrine of electing people to salvation? Because this is a, a, a touchy subject with a lot of people. And I think it is severely misunderstood because of this one thing. They don't understand what God was doing with those Jews who were not persuaded. When we understand this, much of the Gospels makes so much sense to us. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Why does Jesus seem to agitate the religious leaders? Why do they not understand who Jesus is? Did Jesus purposely intend to blind them from birth so that the Jewish people could go to hell? May it never be. Paul pronounces that in the strongest language in the Greek. May genoitoi, certainly not. The old King James says, God forbid. So what was God doing with these Jews who were not persuaded? It says they became envious. If you go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 44 and 45, we don't have time to turn there, but it says the Jews became jealous. And what did Paul say? He says, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Therefore, I will turn to the Gentiles. What was God doing by judicially blinding and hardening the Jewish people? It was so that the gospel could explode to the Gentile population. It wasn't meant just for the Jewish people. Let's do turn over to Acts chapter 28, because I do want you to see this. In Acts chapter 28, starting with verse 23. So when he had appointed a time, many days had come, and many came to his lodging, to whom he explained, same strategy. What is Paul doing? He's explaining and he's solemnly testifying of the kingdom of God, and what is he doing? Paul is persuading them. Just like we saw in Thessalonica, Paul is persuading his Jewish countrymen. And what is he using as his source? He's persuading from them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Nothing new in his strategy, is it? He's doing it from morning till evening, and some what? Some were persuaded. Again, the human agency of free will to decide to follow Jesus Christ is given to everyone equally. They were persuaded. Now what about those who didn't believe? Paul said, spoke, so the Holy Spirit spoke rightly, verse 25. Isaiah the prophet said this, saying, Go to this people, saying, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. 
for the hearts of this people, what? Have grown dull. They were not born dull from birth. They were not blinded purposely from birth so that they could never understand who the Messiah was. They had prophet after prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher after preacher. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 30, 23 and verse 37, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, as tears were flowing down Jesus' face, he said, you have killed the prophets that were sent to you. And this is what he said. He said, I would have. Now either Jesus is being ingenuous and he doesn't really mean what he's saying or Jesus' tears and his brokenness for Jerusalem is real. He said, I would have. I would have gathered you as a chicken, as a hen gathers its chicks under his wing. But notice what he says. But you were not willing. He doesn't say that God was not willing, that God elected you to perdition, that God blinded you from birth. He said, no, you were not willing. The onus is on you and I. Are we willing? And then in Luke, it says these words, just to, to make it even stronger, Luke adds this, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What does God do when you have truth this morning? When God shows you something in your Bible study and you refuse to respond to it, God will hide further truth from your eyes. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I know we're really, really running out of time, and so I'm going to quickly cover this subject in Romans. This is going to be a quickie. So I'm just going to give you two chapters, Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9. The Jews are asking two questions. The Jews who are not persuaded, two questions. What advantage is there being a Jew then? If I'm just as lost, even though Abraham's my great, 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 great ancestry grandfather, I'm just as culpable and guilty for my sin because I've got the law as Gentiles who's got the law written in their heart and they're just as guilty and they don't have all these blessings that we got, then what advantage is there being a Jew? Paul answers that question. Chiefly this in every way because to you were committed the oracles of God. The Jewish nation was God's elect body in the Old Testament, not elect in the sense of salvation. Salvation has always been through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 2. Those who are Jews are Jews inwardly of circumcision of the heart. And that's what stems that question. Well, what advantage is there then being a Jew? You have the privileges of taking God's message to the world. Romans chapter 9 answers this question. Has God's purpose in election failed? If so many unbelieving Jews are not coming to faith in Christ, has God's purpose in election failed? He says, certainly not. Romans chapter 11 asks two more questions, and then we're going to wrap it up. Two questions. The first question, has God cast away his people? Again, the strongest affirmative that Paul could answer with, 
God forbid. Certainly not. Second question, Romans 11, 11. Have they stumbled so that they should fall? The question is, did they miss the Messiah so that they could go to hell? That's really what he's asking. His answer is, God forbid, but hook them to jealousy. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Now, what about the Jews that have rejected? Are they lost forever? Are they without hope? No, they're not. In fact, just the opposite. And I'm just going to summarize Romans chapter 11, verses 19 through 25. God says this, those Jews who refuse to be persuaded are broken off from the natural olive branch. The nation of Israel is the natural olive branch. The branches are Jewish people. Why are they broken off? Why is that branch snapped off? And God says, you're not a part of the true people of God. Paul answers that question. It's not because they were elected to hell. He says it's because of their unbelief. Point number two. He says anyone can stand on the basis of faith. He says, and you Gentiles, you stand not because of something special about you. You only stand because of faith. And then he says, therefore, don't be haughty, but instead fear. Implied this, that everyone needs to humble themselves before God because God is not a respecter of persons. If natural branches were not spared, neither will wild branches be spared if they refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. Election to salvation, some and for others, severity. And it's conditioned on faith alone. He says, why were they broken off? Because they would not continue in belief. And he says, you better fear and your faith better be genuine because if you do not persevere and continue in your faith, then your faith was fraudulent from the start. You were never a believer. And then he says to the Jewish people, and I'll end with this, those Jews who are not a part of the elect, get this, they're not a part of the, of, of the election of grace. They're not a part of that group. He says, God can graft them back in if they don't remain in unbelief. So what's our conclusion? Well, I've got several. <laughs> One, our passion in our prayer, it ought to be a group of people that will turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. The weapons of our warfare, they are mighty through God. The scripture is our biblical method. We open the Bible, we the facts, we demonstrate, we be as efficient as we can, we be as effective as we can. But most importantly, I think we ought to pray the same way Paul prayed for the nation of Israel. This is what he prayed in Romans chapter 10. In the middle of all of this discussion about Israel, this is what he prayed. It's my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they may be saved. That should be our prayer for Northern Utah.
A church that turns the world upside down has a strategy for reaching the lost. It's both pragmatic and it's biblical. Our aim is to reach those who are most receptive. And our vision is to reach those in the periphery as quickly and as effectively as we can. Our sole source and authority is the power to open the mind is the Bible. Our exhortation is to believers to unite together in a local assembly that we can use our joint giftedness to sound forth the gospel in northern Utah. We trust God's infinite wisdom. And we must be prepared for persecution and rejection, knowing that this is one of God's tools to fan the message of grace even further. I hope I didn't confuse you. I'll hang around afterwards if people want to ask me some questions. And Dan will be here as well. So let's close with prayer and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Father, God, the mystery in the Old Testament is now being fully explained by the prophets and prophets and the apostles in the New Testament. That God intended, always intended from the beginning to choose Gentiles for salvation. And God, your infinite wisdom, we don't understand why you blind some and why you open the heart of others. But God, we do know this, that every man is able to respond and be persuaded. And those who reject you even use their rejection to further the gospel, and that even those who reject you don't leave them alone without a witness, and they have the potential to yet believe in Christ. Father, I pray for us in this strategic location of northern Utah, God, where you want to plant and establish a lighthouse for Jesus Christ that preaches a simple, true gospel so that people can have a relationship with God through Christ alone. God, strengthen this assembly. Strengthen this church, we pray in Jesus' name.